presents the grandest spectacle on earth for 1964 and 1965. The International Exposition in Flushing Meadow Park. It's a spectacle as varied, as colorful, and as happy as any place in the world. The images of the fair, the places, the people, and all the happenings make for infinite impressions. The fair is foreign and domestic. It's ordinary and fantastic. It mixes the glamour of some of our alphabetical corporations with the beauty and charm of a hundred different countries. The looks and the costumes, the sights and the smiles, all make for kaleidoscopic memories of a great fair that's great fun. A world's fair is, to use a favorite word of W.C. Fields, a melange. It's a mixture, a conglomeration, a cluster of things. In fact, had this fair failed, we might have called it Cluster's Last Stand. Happily, it is succeeding. Now, this New York fair is designed to do a number of things. It's designed to entertain, to divert, to instruct, to inform, to arouse the desire to travel, and to arouse the desire to buy. It's also intended to give some notion of the future. Let's have a look. Welcome to voice print identification. 2001, a space policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, pal. Here at Clavia Space, you know, we're here to have fun. We enjoy the film. We get to talk about it. We have some laughs. And we've been having so much fun that other people have noticed us having so much fun and <laughs> decided to join in. <laughs> what a treat we have for you. This is a kind of a level up for us as a show, and we're really excited to take you on the journey that he's paved for us. And it is a roller coaster. What our guest today is really great at doing is putting a lens in front of viewers to show them maybe some of the aspects of the film that eluded somebody maybe on their first watch or even on their third. Maybe a correlation that on the surface may seem arbitrary, but if you look at some of the deeper anchor points are really an artistic expression from Kubrick. In some cases, they are literally intended. In some cases, there's a paper trail to proving Kubrick's intentions and intentionally abstract, but also intentionally encoded with meaning. The layers that are both surrealist and allegorical at the same time. But, but anything that we tell you is fantastic as he is on our show to really get the the breadth of his insight you really need to read this stuff you know it's just a few bucks for 2001 and and full metal jacket each and for and for the shining book you know it's it's a great deal like 20 bucks for 800 pages of film theory I mean that's a fantastic deal of of literary work, right? Because we're not just talking about point A to B, dry. Yeah, this is not academic a, a critic's analysis. review of the film. This is wow, <laughs> and I think that's just a a great way to uh, go ahead and introduce our guest for today, uh, Mr. Robert Vatcher. Oh, hello, hello, hi, hi, hi. hello. Mr. Robert Thatcher, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's, it's going to be an exciting talk. Our, our listeners may not be aware that Mr. Thatcher is the author of three books on Stanley Kubrick, which are all available on Amazon. They're all available on Kindle if you're interested. So check them out. We'll have, of course, a link in the show notes. You can buy the Stanley Kubrick Breakdown series as a set. You can buy individually punching through the Kevlar of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. I am Jack's Axe, breaking down the barriers of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and the one we're going to be really discussing 
today, 2019, The Odyssey Brief, Breaching the Hall of Discovery, Parts 3 and 4. Mr. Vatcher, what got you interested in the work of Stanley Kubrick? I was always interested in science fiction. Whenever I was home in New Jersey as a kid and not playing outside, I was always watching movies. And it was usually science fiction or Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Things like that. But <laughs> yes. As I understand it, 2001 didn't play on television until 1977. And I could have sworn I, was, I saw it as a at like an eight or a nine-year-old. I did get to see Planet of the Apes as like a seven-year-old, which was probably not a good idea. <laughs> so that got me interested early on with, with Kubrick, especially 2001, because it was science fiction. But did I understand it? No, I had no idea what it was really, really about. You know, it was, it's a hard to understand movie as it is anyway. Absolutely. At any age. <laughs> the movie, the way I view it, it, it just evolves. And I happen to evolve with its own story. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody gets a sense of evolution in that in that movie. I mean, it's already there. And every time you see it, you you see something different. You see something that means something else to you. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. You have uncovered so many layers in the kind of the, the in, endless onion of <laughs> Kubrick's symbolism that we would love to just kind of peel away bit by bit some of what you were initially discussing with us by email this absolutely folks is a great i mean if you if you don't read any other critical text about 2001 please read this because this 2019 the odyssey brief is a fantastic piece of i think we were talking about it earlier i hope you'll take this in the complimentary spirit in which it's intended that you are um maybe in the spirit of a, a Tom Robbins or a Hunter S. Thompson of film theory and, and criticism. And uh, we just I love, love all of your, you know, the, the points that you pull together. The relations yeah. are incredible. Absolutely. Well, th that is some of the best things that I've ever heard about my work. And uh, I know it's very complicated to read and it's very esoteric. And I put a sort of poetic twist on things sometimes and make it even worse for people to uh, <laughs> to understand. It and makes it even better for Kubrick fans who love to uh, mull over every sentence of something, so. <laughs> no, this isn't Hawaii. Pathy Pig's magic carpet has, through the years, transported you to all five continents. But today, this colorful world is on show in one square mile that once was a meadow swamp just paddling distance from New York's waterfront. We've been here before, but we've come back for our 500th full-color view of what the world has to offer, because the best of it is here at the World's Fair. There is a mysterious grapevine that makes an inside dopester of the average American, and the word has gone out across the land, come early. It is a good idea. To date, the New York World's Fair has been averaging about 185,000 admissions a day. That's somewhat below expectations, but hardly a sign of failure. The record day thus far saw almost 290,000 people attend. Each day, thousands of people pour through the gates to see this fair, to judge its attractions, and most importantly, to enjoy a day together. One can be alone here, but never lonely, for part of the fair's appeal lies in seeing so many other people happy. One of the most fascinating things you have opened up in, in our eyes is this endless font of correlations between 2001 A Space Odyssey and the 1964 New York World's Fair. Yeah, who knew? I mean, we knew that Con Peterson and, and Douglas Trumbull were picked because of their, their film that they put together for the fair, To the Moon and Beyond. And things were, were sort of picked out of that film to use in 2001, just like uh, the film Universe yes. you know, was from 1960, which is fabulous. You can see a lot of influence from that film. Mm -hmm. But how is it that this has gone on for so long that and, and we knew that things were picked from the World's Fair. People were picked from the World's Fair. And a film was sort of incorporated 
But how come we didn't pick up on all these other things? Exactly. I, I, I don't. It's just. When you know, did you it, begin to pick up on the connections? Here? I guess it was about a year and a half ago. Hmm. And I think I looked up the pen, the ah. atomic pen that's floating in the in the cabin. And I think I, I just I looked it up and I'm like, oh, that was wait a minute. That was at the World's Fair. Let's go. Let's go hunting. Let's go knock on some <laughs> doors. And I, every day it was like, let's go add to the list because it just kept coming. It was such a watershed moment. I was drenched. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Parker atomic pen that floats around the cabin of the Orion spacecraft while Dr. Floyd is asleep is in the same shot as the GM futuristic car that was shot on a separate set. We talked about on a past episode with the projection coming through the the seat in front of it It amazing that he's got a television in the back of the seat Mm -hmm. incredible yes this this is all from this world's fair this uh this futuristic car the pen the vid phone it was at the bell systems pavilion and it's a bell uh telephone in the movie We've got sure. a Pan Am exhibit. We've got the Pan Am Orion spacecraft, which is one of the most famous things about the product placement in 2001. One of the things in this article that's really a great visual is the comparison here of the uh, X-15 hypersonic rocket aircraft and also this uh, forms in transit concept sculpture. I mean, can we talk a little bit about the the optimism in this in these designs and this technology in 1964? There was a lot of optimism, and that's great that you bring that up. I, I look at 2001 as a retro futurism, where you're looking back at a time when there was so much optimism for the future, and and I only just learned that word a couple of weeks ago. I'm mm. Like, oh, that fits. You know, and this is this is about things that fit, even though they're not connected. If you find a good quote, like Burt Norton's quote on uh, T.S. Eliot's quote on Burt Norton about the present and the and the future and 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 the past sort of being the same thing. Mm. There's there's some of that going on as well. Mm. I don't have T.S. Eliot's uh, quote right in front of me, but there's something in the associations that when you start to make them they kind of become more evident and some people may think that's confirmation bias but you've drawn such clear parallels to all these things it almost seems to be like it's one of those things that's the forest for the trees they're hidden in plain sight if you're in the mindset to look for them i i agree these were just kind of right out in the open for everybody to to figure out like oh i was at the world's fair and i i saw that pen there and i saw that car there too the the interesting thing about and something i didn't include in the article because i didn't know how to write it was the uh firebird automobile exhibit and it had this this way to open up the headlights where the the door just kind of of the headlights just kind of lifted up and I guess if, and it looks just like the scene at the very end of the movie where the pod is about to come out and, and the, the music is at its highest and that the light just comes out of the, the pod room mm-hmm. as it's opening up in front. And I'm like, oh my God, I wish I could write that into the article the way I'm seeing it. And I just couldn't. Wow. The things that you're bringing up are so many things that are subconsciously going to imprint in any mind of a visitor. And we've got Stanley Kubrick and his entire family here. So he's there with Chris John, his wife, along with the, the kids, Vivian and Anya. Now, Katerina is the daughter that you have actually spoken with, if I'm not mistaken. I did speak to Katerina recently, and and uh, and I asked if, if she or her mom could add any more than what she was quoted with in the article. And there wasn't much more to add. Uh, just about the towers and the and the infinity pool and the and the big globe and and the Disney exhibit. She remembered the song. It's a small world after all, and that was a great moment too because I knew that I had to email her probably sooner than later, mm. and just to and I was going to wait until I was finished with the article to mm. ask. But I thought, you know, why not why not just ask now? And I I just simply asked, Were, did you guys happen to go to the World's Fair? And she said. Yes, we did. We all went. And I thought, this is amazing. (laughs) 
We all went. It was dark. I remember crowds and everybody being very impressed. The smooth glass-like pond under the huge metal sculpture of the earth. Impressive. The tall space rocket type tower with the restaurant on top, which later proved to be an actual spaceship in Men in Black. I knew it. An open fairground type train ride on tracks to see the animatronic dolls dressed in various national costumes singing It's a Small World After All. I still remember the tune. Katerina Kubrick, October 2022. I was able to get in touch with uh, the person who owns the rights to the World's Fair. Oh, really? At least in 1964. Interesting. And he was very generous. He said, use whatever you want. None of it is uh, copyrighted anymore. I think oh. that's long run out. Wow. And, and he said, have at it. I'm glad people are interested in the World's Fair. So we he had just... no idea what I was writing about. <laughs> Nobody knew what I was writing about. I said I was doing a piece on the World's Fair because yeah. really it was, you know, it was that much information from the World's Fair that's in 2001, but I never told anybody. And I have to go back and re rewrite everybody wow. and to say thanks and say, hey, this was really under the guise of something else right. and this is what it really was but that's great journalism though you got the most out of out of your source for for what you needed that's awesome it's it's very funny that um as far as the sources go the um it's 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 quite uncanny how well that came together there was absolutely no slip-ups communication was fabulous with everybody i contacted mm. and they all said yes go ahead even though they didn't know what it was for. I love hearing that, right? Yeah. I mean, and they just, yeah, they want the information so. out. There's not a good medium for it to be preserved in right now. Now we know that at least for this World's Fair, there was a copyright. That's interesting. I, I think, that, I'm pretty sure the New York's New York City World or the New York World Fair in 1964 was not certified as a World's Fair, actually. It, it's kind of funny how the drama played out back then between the organizers and this Olympic-sized uh, committee that had to say yay or nay uh -huh. that that was a World's Fair or not. And I guess they just it just never happened and they just wound up just calling it the 1964 World's Fair. Strictly speaking, the New York World's Fair is not a World's Fair in the sense that it is not recognized as one by the international office in Paris that worries about such things. At the Pepsi-Cola line, kids can pass the time of day with an old friend, Goofy. Walt Disney's Imagineers designed these international gardens, authentic miniature reproductions of famous landmarks and typical scenes from around the world. Africa, with its great promise. Italy, with its historic cities and its storied ruins. Reading a little bit about you know some of Disney's original involvement and right Disney had a big involvement in it in the World's Fair, which you know blew my mind when I was reading about. It. But then you you look at it and the more you see of the place and the the more we saw from your research and reading, it definitely comes through in the final product. Yeah, looking at Epcot comparatively mm -hmm. really and the architecture of some of these buildings, World's Fair buildings of the future and things, absolutely. I but, love the, yeah, the, the animatronics part of it was just oh, really interesting. It's yeah. Just, and, and the attention to detail that Disney went to. The attention to detail for like they're, what they got, a, a family from 1900 that's fully animatronic with a, a little dog. I think the, the, it's the part of that's part, was part of the GE booth, right? The GE electric show. Sure. Holding down third position on the popularity list is the General Electric Show, which features a typical American family created by Walt Disney. Easier. Mother, I was reading about a fella named Tom Edison who's working on an idea for snap-on electric lights. I'll believe that when I see The mechanical it. dog has proved to be the best-loved animal at the fair. It's hard to imagine how life could be any easier. 
So at the World's Fair, uh, the Traveler's Insurance had an exhibit and they showed a film. It includes a chapter on the dawn of man and it talks about using stones and pebbles to, uh, to build tools and such. This is East Africa and man, your ancestor of a million and a half years ago. He is ape-like, clothed in coarse hair, but he stands upright. He can think, he can learn. Early man uses rocks and clubs to kill animals for food. He fashions small stone tools to help him cut through tough hides. His world is violent, cruel, but he survives. And this simple pebble tool is the beginning of a technology which will take man to the stars. Now a new world rises with the dawn, and a new creature stands before the challenge of the universe, man. Homo sapiens, thinking man. His skills as a hunter and toolmaker trapped the mighty mammoth and gave his world its name, the Stone Age. Never were the exploits of primitive man depicted with such realism or such good humor as through Walt Disney's marvelous new technique, audio animatronics. And now, at last, the great day. Introducing the hero of the Stone Age, the proud inventor of the wheel. Now at last, man is free, unchained from his cave, free to move forward. Provided, of course, friend wife, who seems just a bit skeptical, supplies the go power. There's another part in the article where I just want to add the import, the symbolism of tools as it parallels bones. Bones as a transitional sure the symbolizing the last traces of the dead they also appear to last forever resembling permanence which part of life that cannot be destroyed indicative of resurrection in the jewish tradition while it could represent knowledge of mortality and of the transitory bones 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 it's everywhere bones as and then tools the the um, bones would have been used before before stones. Any other tools. Yeah. yeah. And were probably relevant for a very long time. What and and it's very exciting that that ape has that moment of discovery whether it's the monolith you know passing it along to the ape which I don't think that's happening. I just think he's finding out for himself, yeah. thinking for himself. And and he has this discovery of you know this weapon what could be used as a weapon. He sees or as a tool, extra kinetic energy gets out of, you know, dropping the bone on top of another one and gets the yeah. idea of, you know, this could accelerate my ability to take down everything in the valley. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to run this place after a while. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He looks at that bone club I, and just yeah. all of that imagination. You can almost see it just forming in a thought cloud above us. Yeah. <laughs> and the first thing I'm doing. I'm going to that pond. Yep. yep. And I'm going to beat the hell out of one ear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll be rulers of this tiny little dwindling pond. <laughs> yeah. The monolith is kind of looming over, silently watching and waiting. Uh, like you said, not really giving them extra abilities or the insight of using tools. Just waiting for that alarm to go off. I'd like to disagree with you. Okay. I think the monolith in its simplest form, gives them the idea of something else because they're surrounded by rocks because God doesn't build in straight lines. But here you've got something perfectly machined. How could you? I've never seen that before in my life. Oh, interesting. And what's the the ratio that it uses? Yeah, one by three by nine. Is that right? And that's I, supposed to be... One by four one by, by nine? four by nine, sorry. I've never been able to get to the bottom of that. And I didn't mean to disagree with you. Oh, no, not at all. I no, just we meant encourage. to add in. We encourage. <laughs> I, and, I, and 
I've thought about that for a long time that that because I come from that sort of a business, I used to inspect things like that, like a slab of steel mm -hmm. that looked a lot like that. And you'd have to measure it. You know, um, it just reminded me of my old work as an inspector and mm -hmm. the things that I did on bridges and pressure vessels in China. And um, I'm like, those, those straight edges just just scream so much to me, you know, just in essence. And it could give an idea from there. Do you think and then the apes would build on that. Do you think it was uh, buried or that it appeared overnight? Which, where do you come down on that? Oh, I don't know. We've, I we've guess it just appeared. It. Yeah, we've, we've discussed. We're not sure either. We we kind of both kind of think that one's kind of left untouched, yeah. even in the Arthur Clarke novel. Um, hmm. Not really, not really mentioned. Now the TMA zero one was buried. Yeah, they do, they do mention it's deliberately buried on the moon. That's true. Right, times. not the one in Africa. Yeah, it was just simply there. We have to mention the monolith and and how. Westinghouse had dropped that into a time capsule yeah. at the World's Fair. Whoa, that, we, we can't forget that part. No. That's like the cherry on top. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow on the monorail. Today, seen excitingly through the window, along with the best of our yesterdays, all linked up. This colorful world in its entirety on a 640-acre site. The Mormon church lifted straight from Salt Lake City and one of the Chrysler creations. 8,000 workmen bulldozed a million cubic yards of earth to bring four years of planning to an extravagant two-year life. And IBM had the motorized puppet show that ran on a loop of wooden puppets which were synced up to a voice recording doing a show, a little play called Sherlock Holmes in the Singular Case of the Plural Green Mustache. <laughs> Among the industrial exhibitors at the fair, the computer looms large. International Business Machines has hired Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson to explain how computers work. It's an animated puppet show in the IBM arcade. There is no waiting and the performance is continuous. I found it delightful. Several cuts above some of the more elaborate efforts by the big corporations. It also taught me something about computers. Now look at this problem as a series of simple true or false statements. Holmes, this isn't catching us any railroad bandits. On the contrary, true or false, on or off, is or isn't right or wrong, this two-sided logic can solve crimes. And a crime solved is a criminal court. By the by, Watson, turn that railroad switch, will you? I say, that leads onto a dead-end track. Quite. So, really wild stuff going on at the IBM booth, as well as the computers, as we were talking about, the, the stretch and everything else. And it's funny because Kubrick took what was said at the World's Fair about IBM, how IBM was trying to project something that wasn't destructive to society, say. Oh. And, and there were many instances of quotes like that, but, you know, that they were trying to say that computers were safe mm. for people and, and not evil in yeah. a way i can't remember exactly what it says <laughs> and in our well it's and it's those aren't my quotes those are quotes directly from the world's fair yeah. wow and i'm like kubrick just turned this all around and said i'm gonna make a computer that just kills people <laughs> <laughs> well you guys i i mean you read the article I, it says it in there where daisy had come from in the real world yes from the 704 computer so by IBM. And then sandwiched in between that was the IBM 7030 stretch. Stretch. The big boy. Let's which blew my mind because when I saw what was written on the mainframe of Hal's interior, I just thought, what is that? What what is and and in two scenes where Bowman is coming through, one of the depictions is through Hal's lens, actually, and it really obscures your ability to read what's on the other side as Bowman is coming through. But the only thing that I could come up with was E-I-E-I-O. I mean, you <laughs> you came up with it, all right. Another jaw dropper. And I'm like, am I reading this right? 
I sent it to my friend. He's like, I think it's upside down. I said, I said, here, here's the right one. <laughs> Cause I had turned it upside down to see what it said that way. Oh yeah. You know, I'm like, ah, I got to look at all these angles. Yes. I got to knock on so many doors. Yeah. Thank you, Stanley Kubrick. Exactly. This is, this has been such an adventure. Another watershed moment mm. uh, for me. And I contacted the IBM archives and I said, per chance, was there a computer back in the day that used enforce order in enforce order out, which is basically in, you know, what tasks that come in get done as they come in and they get forced out, which is kind of what they were alluding to with house programming. Yeah. It's a for execution of in and out. Because I, of course I looked at BIEIO from there and I'm like, I got to go look up this, this old McDonald's farm song. <laughs> I got to go read about this damn, you know, and it was the same thing. It was the same thing when the, when I, when I'm like thinking about the antenna, I'm like, I got to go look up phallophobia now. Yeah. Yeah. I got to go. I, and I don't want, I know what phallophobia is. Do I really? Yeah. I need to go read about it. So I go to <laughs> go to the wiki page and find out somewhere deep in there that phallophobia is used in heuristic, you know, programming. Yeah. IBM replied back and said, yeah, the first one to use EIEIO programming for computers was the 7030 stretch. No. So I went and read about it. And, you know, there's another door I need to go knock down. Just like total law and order kind of episodes. <laughs> and it's like a three-parter. Jerry Orbach going to knock on <laughs> doors. Like, hey, ma'am, we just... We just want to know. <laughs> I love Jerry. Jerry was this great. Became the fastest computer until 1964, right? The Stretch 7030. Yeah, and and I found out recently in an IBM group that the 7030 not only wasn't 50 percent of its capacity; it was about half of what they they said it was. It was actually like 30 percent of what they said it was going to be. Wow! It was a super failure that IBM actually does not want to talk about hmm. too much. They were nice at the archives, and I have to thank Max over there for that. It, it was a great correspondence because it just he just kept feeding me stuff. And when I saw a picture of the Stretch's faceplate, I thought, "Wow, it looks just like Hal's faceplate," mm. you know, but in a it, not so square. But mm. Hal is more rectangular than this, but it's the same color scheme. Yeah, it's black and silver, or I should say black or matte gray, really. Carpet matte gray and silver almost. The person that did that drawing has done most of my drawings that I put in my book. I got, I fell in love with doing illustrations and Yu Jong Choi has been such a charm to work with. These are great. All of these are fantastic. So looking at this here, we're also comparing this to the 7090, which appeared in Dr. Strangelove is something you pointed out. We, we didn't know this. I didn't know it either until I started looking around. As much as Clark would like to disassociate Hal from IBM and, and just talk about heuristic algorithmic, algorithmic learning. Fact is that IBM was an integral part of not only the computing world right in here, but also they were advising. You know, they were asking them questions at the time. And in, in addition to that, there was a letter from Kubrick referencing one of his colleagues and asking, "Does IBM know that we're making a movie about a in, insane computer? <laughs> <laughs> because we don't want to." you know, shock them with this, you know, we, we need to be upfront with them about it Could be bad because, because they were helping. Do we see a close up of Dave or Frank's gauntlet where he's got the buttons on his gloves and everything and on the buttons is the IBM logo. Many instances of the IBM logo in the film, right? The iPads had an IBM yeah, logo. Are, mm -hmm. I wonder if IBM helped with some of these ideas. You would think they got to be in the know on product placement or MGM legal is going to have a hemorrhage. So somebody, they, they've got to be associated somehow, right? Because, yeah, the, otherwise that would be like saying we're going to make a, a movie about a Pan Am uh, spacecraft that goes crazy and crashes and kills everybody. That's not bad press for <laughs> Pan Am or anything, right? <laughs> wow. You got to be careful about that stuff, right? Absolutely. You can't just put somebody else's product in the in a film. That might they might think it's harmful to their their brand. That's right. It's like the can't give bad guys iPhones law. <laughs> yeah, 
perfect example. Wes used to work in uh, Apple products for many years. So it's a great product. Hey, I've, I think if, if, the, <laughs> if the ship had had an app, had a Mac running things, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> Do you remember, we mentioned it on a previous episode, the iMac came out, the first generation iMac in 99 or 2000. It was like a Super Bowl commercial, only ran maybe once or twice. But we both remembered seeing it and they it wasn't Douglas Rain. I said that it was an episode. No, it's not. They got uh, some guy to do a voice of Hal, and it's it's Hal announcing the iMac. And I remember at the time, like, that's really cool, but do you want your computer to be associated right. with a psycho? <laughs> there are dozens of other computers at the fair, including several in the National Cash Register Pavilion, where machines clack out recipes, vacation plans, and other information for you. The more traditional adding machines are not overlooked either. The happy sound of the cash register echoes across the land. These machines are part of NCR's game room for kiddies. Here, youngsters are encouraged to develop a healthy interest in profit and loss, the flow of capital, and the price earnings ratio. It has proved to be a popular exhibit and should allay any fears that creeping socialism is ruining our children. The stone wall of the Japanese pavilion has also been warmly praised for its originality. I took a leisurely walk around it and ran into one of the nicest people I met at the fair. His name, he told me, was TikTok. TikTok strolls around the Japanese pavilion every afternoon, if the weather is good, and if his batteries are not feeling run down. He proved to be a congenial robot and consented to an interview, provided we followed robots' rules of order. A sidewalk sign of the new radio-controlled commercial Japan of today. No, it doesn't need a boy to push. There's this to be said about the fair. If you walk with a robot, only a few people bother to stare. TikTok's conversation is limited, consisting mostly of plugs for Japanese watches, but he would not have been sent here if he weren't willing to work. Yeah, the World's Fair must have been quite a spectacle. I mean, just in every pavilion, right, um, that showed up from around the world, which pretty much everywhere did and they brought with them their food as well it is true that many of the large restaurants particularly in the foreign pavilions are expensive this is the toledo in the spanish pavilion dinner here with drinks can run as high as 15 dollars a person the service is elegant the food is good but each diner will have to judge for himself whether he has eaten 15 dollars worth a similar meal in a good restaurant in New York might run two-thirds of the price, in Madrid about one-third the price. However, we should not be churlish about Spanish prices. The Spaniards have had some shattering experiences with the maintenance unions at the fair, and they're paying carpenters, truck drivers, and sweepers wages that would be unheard of in Spain. A hearty grazie goes to the Mastro pizza people who deal in fresh hot pizzas, 25 cents a wedge or $2 for a wheel. It's a perfectly respectable pizza. And it, I, I, there was, of course, a New York pizza place, you know, across the path somewhere too. But <laughs> uh, the, I, I would have loved to have seen the World's Fair. I think that would have been so interesting back then in 64. Incredible what, what we've seen. I, I work for a man during the weekends, who was a physicist, worked on fusion in the 50s, and also went on to work at NASA to design cameras for Skylab. He's 103 now. Wow. And he's sharper than me with a better memory. I asked him when I was reading your article if he remembered the 1964 New York World's Fair. And he said, oh, yeah, I went and I took the family. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, I asked him about it. He said, actually, he didn't really have much of a, a memory of that one other than just the general ambience. He said the one that really stuck out to him was the 33 World's Fair in Chicago when he was 13. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because awesome. they, 
They had the Burlington locomotive, mm. the Zephyr, it was called, apparently. <laughs> that made a big impression on him. And uh, the other thing that made a big impression on him was Sally Rand, the burlesque queen and known for the bubble dance and the, the, the fan dance, the original fan dance. And apparently she caused a big scandal at the 33 Chicago World's Fair. Wow with her dancing a lot of complaints <laughs> about her bubble dance but he had a little grin on his face when he said it so <laughs> i guess he got a chance to see that they knew what they were doing <laughs> and robert moses the president of the fair has vetoed anything suggesting sex many exhibitors are longing for a bit of sally rand to draw the customers if anybody wants to see more from this uh, check out this nbc special on youtube called a world's fair diary with the Andy Rooney of 1964, Edwin Chuckles Newman. This guy, I mean, is curmudgeon with a capital C. He's very dry. He is pretty funny, but he just walks around and complains about everything, but you just get to see a lot of good footage. One enterprise in the amusement area that's doing very nicely is the log flume ride. The logs are made of fiberglass from the mighty fiberglass forests of North America. And the price is 95 cents for a three-minute ride, or 32 cents a minute. It's recommended that you take your aunt along on this diversion, in which event the ride may be referred to as La Flume de Matant. The climax is a slide down the last chute, which looks as though it would soak you through, but actually sends you away only slightly moist and hardly needing a pressing. He said that he'd never seen more friendly, better behaved people than at the New York World's Fair in 1964, which now jibes a little bit more with what is in the Michael Benson book, if you don't have it by now. Um, it's <laughs> on page 33, I think. Ray Lovejoy is talking about uh, getting booking uh, tickets to see To the Moon and Beyond for Stanley. And there's a passage where Arthur C. Clarke has checked into the hotel and he's walking around Manhattan just mystified at how nice and friendly and full of smiles and warmth the people of Manhattan are. It, it could happen. But that's that's a beautiful kind of insight that maybe this jives a little bit more with Clark's experience because there's a lot of out-of-towners, tourists coming every day. Apparently, there was like 180,000 people averaging attendance Jeez. a day. And also the bonhomie of having this crazy futuristic theme park in the middle of town for half a year or whatever. That's pretty cool. You were uh, two years. Two years. Excuse me. God, two years. I think about two years. Wow. That's Imagine that. Imagine being able to just go back like it were Disney World or something. Right. You could just plan and have a vacation Jeez. and go back and see the Mississippi Pavilion where apparently they had the best fried chicken for only 90 cents a <laughs> breast. So. When the rains come, everything gets damp, except the enthusiasm of the visitors. Indeed, I noted a remarkable carnival atmosphere, as if the rain were part of the show. Certainly, very few people chose to lose their place in line when it poured, and virtually no one complained. All of which leads to a general observation about the crowds at the World's Fair. I've rarely seen better natured, better behaved, more friendly people than these tired Americans trudging around the Flushing Meadow under what can be very trying circumstances. People do not shove or push or fight or use bad language. Their patience is inexhaustible and their energy should be reassuring to anyone worried about the physical stamina of our citizens. In short, one of the pleasantest things about the fair was the light it cast on the American tourist. A good deal of snobbish nonsense has been written about how badly he behaves. I've generally found that the truth is quite the opposite. The American traveler is a monument of endurance, resourcefulness, and good humor. And the World's Fair proves it. Clark is busy finishing his previous book in the hotel on April 30th when Kubrick goes alone to see the moon and beyond at the Transportation and Travel Pavilion. 
and he sees on the ticket that Con Peterson is the director, and then later finds out after inquiry about Doug Trumbull painting the galaxy on the project. Yeah. A lot of the tracks that you guided us through are really illuminated more now when I go back and read some of these parts of the book where, for example, graphic films, the L.A. outfit that had made to the moon and beyond for the World's Fair um, was contracted by Kubrick to produce the spacecraft and the moon-based designs, but also Trumbull was let go of graphic films because they had to relocate for the purposes of working for Stanley and they Mm. couldn't afford to take him along. So thankfully, Con Peterson hollered at Trumbull to say, hey, do you want to work for me? So it was like destiny that that eventually he did end up on the project. I thought that was really wild. You guys are brilliant because one of you found the Dawn of Man film at the World's Fair. Is that, who was that? (laughs) That's Wes. I could not believe that. And I mean... Cooper, that he he had to have gone head over heels after seeing that. I mean, wow. One of our obsessions is the bush baby. I see. We we kind of had a thing for a long time until we, we found the Stanley Kubrick Archives Tashin book that has a really good picture of the deleted scene. We you know about what came of the Bush baby, where the Bush baby come from, the concept of the Bush baby. So this is an Afrikaans exhibit in the at the nineteen sixty four World's Fair. As far as I could tell, yeah. That, you know that much there were, must have happened. Anya there, must have said, Daddy, can I have a Bush baby? Right. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, Daddy Kubrick was not about it. <laughs> it's it's the question I should have asked Katarina, and uh, but I asked her enough, and she's so gracious with her answers to me. But I don't. I think she would remember a Bush baby, but right, there, yeah, right. That would have come up before. Probably. That would have come up. But I, I, as far as I know, there were animals at the exhibits also. So there had to be a bush baby and bush babies were very, you could own a bush baby back then. I'm not sure about these days. And I guess it depends on the state, mm-hmm. but I think you could still own them. Will Mr. Travers please contact the Met office? Will Mr. Travers please contact the Met office? Hello. How are you, Squirt? Uh, what are you doing? Pain. Where's Mummy? Gone to shopping. Oh, who's taking care of you? Rachel. May I speak to Rachel, please? She's gone to the bathroom. Are you coming to my party tomorrow? I'm sorry, sweetheart, but I can't. Why not? Well, you know, Daddy's traveling. Very sorry about it, but I just can't. I'm going to send you a very nice present, though. All right. Anything special that you want? Yes. What? A telephone. We got lots of telephones already. Can't you think of anything else you want for your birthday? Something very special? Yes. What? A bush baby. A bush baby. Well, we'll have to see about that. Listen, sweetheart, I want you to tell Mommy something for me. Will you remember? Yes. Well, tell mommy that I telephoned, okay? Yes. That I'll try to telephone again tomorrow. Now, will you tell her that? Yes. Okay, sweetheart. Now, have a nice birthday tomorrow. Right. And have a nice birthday party tomorrow, too, huh? All right. Okay, now take care and be a good girl, won't you? All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Happy birthday. There's a funny thing about bush babies. Oh, yeah? There's a very funny thing about bush babies in that they're very social. They're one of the most social animals Mm. on earth next to humans. And the funny thing about bush babies is sometimes the males go off together to be alone. Like bonobo chimps. And if you were to have something on somebody who had classified information like Dr. Floyd, Um. if you had something on him... It might be his sexuality. Yeah. She replies with that snide answer, a bush baby. <laughs> right. 
Because maybe she knows. Yeah. And if it's the sexual revolution, maybe mom's not really shopping. Uh-huh. And maybe Rachel's just right there off camera. She's not really in the bathroom because she doesn't want to talk to dad. Yeah. That's true. Dad's gone all the time anyway. If we're going to look at it from a 60s point of view, mm-hmm. maybe. Dad, but dad's got cocktails that's all. after 6 p.m. anyway, if he is home. Cocktail sounds good about now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So we're not, we're really not in the future like we thought we would be mm-hmm. back then because it's not the sexual revolution mm-hmm. that we thought it would be. And everybody's, some people are not okay with people's sexual preferences. And that is definitely something that could be used against somebody who has access to classified materials. So it became my theory, you don't have to include this, but it became my theory that Floyd is bisexual because the man that he meets when he first arrives on the moon. Oh, from Russia? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, on the, the ring. Oh, oh, on the sorry. ring. Yeah. He says, oh, you're looking good. Yeah. Real fast. Oh, looking good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens really fast. And he's sitting far away from the, the, the females. He is sitting far away from the females. The only female interaction, because when we were sourcing clips for our first episodes, we were kind of noticing this, uh, that the only female interactions are all clerical or yes, sir, no, sir, except for the doctor with uh, the Russian scientists. Otherwise, it's it's a very, um, there's certainly no flirtation going on with any of the women with Dr. Floyd. Hi. Good morning, sir. Good morning. And I see you again. Oh, hello, Dr. Hello, Floyd. Hello, hello. Hey, you're looking great. Thank you. It's nice to have you back. Really, though, that that is an interesting point because we're going to do some episodes about the fashion, too. But oh, we're, yeah. we're definitely in a, a period of like Nehru jacket level hip is about the extent of it. Right. We're not getting anything beyond something that has a, a strict line to it. Right. We got some formal lines. There's not a lot of open necks, untucked things, curves. People are pretty much in very suited up costumes, aren't they? I don't know. It's definitely, a, yeah, like a 60s fashion. Um, I think it's I think it's done on purpose. I think it's just, to, just enough to make it look still like the 60s. But the 60s, like the, the 60s, but, but in the future. Yeah, because otherwise yeah. you're just moving backwards into the, what was before. Yeah, I... Absolutely. It definitely has that flavor of the time, I'd say. I love the idea of him including all these 60s-centric items into it. And then, like you were talking earlier, using that retro-futurism to uh, project what it might become in the future and still keep it grounded in things that people know. But the future isn't what they thought it would be in the 60s, is it? No. By 2001, we were nowhere near what had been projected not at all apparently we were nowhere near it and yet we were laughing at things like uh, well we weren't but you know some people might be snide about the fact that there's analog displays or something when behind them is a, an ipad <laughs> so, <laughs> so it is like an alternate universe maybe where politically things shifted and, and happened in a different way this could have been an alternate version of where the future would have been i i think it's a kind of a take on you know, to get to the future from the present, you must look at the past mm-hmm. because the past is very much the same as the future. Things don't change too much. Uh, and I, I think that's a lot of the point in his films mm-hmm. uh, eventually that, you know, take a look around, see what's happening Human and, nature and see for yourself constantly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Social media is exposing a lot of it though. A lot of the, parts of the bad society that we mm-hmm. would like to kind of do away with, I think. Mm-hmm. This is the New York World's Fair at the midpoint of the 60s. From the day its gates opened, people were drawn to it from every state and city in America and from all over the world. They came with a sense of excitement to taste the exotic foods, to shop, to stare, to wonder and explore. The world in stainless steel, the Unisphere, as high as a 12-story building. And we might be inside it here at Idlewild, the airport where, by the million, people from all over the world, hey-ho, are coming to the fair. (laughs) 
there's a billion dollar glimpse of the day after tomorrow from the monorail, but get in early while there's still elbow room, because half a million people will be jostling together here in an hour's time and loving it. Get ready for magic, the General Motors 100-foot canopy, something you won't forget. This article came together. It was hard to write, but it came together so easily. It just kept giving itself up mm. to me. And it was just everywhere I went was like, oh, there's something else. You know, and, and is this going to is this going to stop at any point? Right. You know, if I look further, am I going to am <laughs> I going to? And I did. I, I started watching the marketing films that were at the World's Fair. And there's there's so much influence in there. Um, Ford's Magic Skyway. This pavilion is a bridge between the past and the future. A marvel of its time, the quadricycle. Henry Ford built it in 1896 as an experiment which led 65 million cars later to modern products like these. Uh, Ford also had animatronic paleolithic hominids as part of that Dawn of Man display. The fourth most popular pavilion is the Ford Motor Companies, also a Disney product. After a lengthy wait, you get to ride a Ford car through prehistoric times, which were even earlier than the Model T. In 12 minutes, you cover several million years of history, and it's good fun. Ford's Magic Skyway was a ride that was kind of colorful inside. And uh, when you get to the other side, I guess you're looking at new cars to, to maybe purchase mm. in the future, things like that. Um, just just about everything, um, uh, even down to um, the Dow chemical exhibits. I thought that's interesting. He used <laughs> chemicals to, to do some of the, the space shots ah. at the end. How interesting. Very How abstract. Well, and and that's the thing about Kubrick is that his nuances they they are they are not only nuanced. Abstraction is already nuanced, mm -hmm. but his nuances have nuance on top of them, and it makes it very very difficult to find the patterns. And when, once you find the patterns, and this, this World's Fair exhibit is is just it's so many that you so many coincidences that you just can't say no to it. In a way, you're kind of mentally or spiritually putting yourself in a Kubrickian frame of mind, I suppose, by by thinking as he did in terms of relating these things to the images and the moments that we see, thinking in your in your own imagination, kind of engaging those same pathways. There's so many, like you say, there's so so saturated with elements that are represented here. We've we've got IBM, GM, of course, Ford, Whirlpool. With Kubrick and his abstractions are a kind of communication, kind of like reading a stop sign. Mm. And we all know communication can be a very difficult thing. And on some levels, we're never really sure if somebody understands us absolutely completely. Yeah. But if you put a stop sign in front of somebody or a speed limit sign or any kind of other visual sign like uh, artwork that you would find at a doctor's office mm. of the human body and the anatomy, you start to find that everybody can read that visual communication in the exact same way. Hmm. So Kubrick has his own visual language going on here. Like the, the map to the World's Fair looks hmm. just like the Calavius base in 2001. Yeah. So they look very uh, similar. You should. Well, first of all, buy this on Amazon. But if you also need to zoom in, look up this map of the New York World's Fair. It looks just like our home sweet home of Clavius. You 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 see, I mean, if I had the, our LP at home, we got the gatefold and you got to get a nice concept. It's kind of like looking down from this, at least from the way this map of God's eye view of this, which I, I wouldn't have seen. I don't think either one of us would have. Right unless you had pointed it out to us. So this is the thing. It's like, I, I said before something about how that may be like seeing the forest for the trees when, when you start to uncover these clues, but it's not that obvious. It takes somebody who has a, a mind to discern these details. And, you know, I think we need to just take a minute to appreciate your perception in this. I mean, you're obviously... Uh, a cineast and very literate and, and can make all kinds of correlations anyway, but you seem to have a real affinity 
for Kubrick's themes here that I just wanted to take a minute to point out because it's not just anybody who could make these correlations, but once you've pointed out to us, you know, we, we see them immediately. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, that's, that was very gracious. It did take a lot of practice to get to this point. And it's just going to get become more and more as I go along, I think. And as mm -hmm. I go along, I'll, I would share it, of course. I think this stuff should be free. I think, it, I think his style of storytelling should be taught in a university. Absolutely. You, you described it as a sensory experience that's better than any curriculum that we have in, in Sight and Sound available to us. And, and here, here to that. Um, all right, guys. Uh, I really appreciate it. Dude, appreciate it's been a lot you. of fun. Yeah. And uh, look forward to part two. Thank you so much. I think I'm going to get high now. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Us too, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks. Thank you. See you next week. From Clavia Space, this is Brad. I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.